two weeks ago, um, Jim spoke to us about Abraham and covenant from Genesis 12 and focused on the first three verses. So I'll read those again and give, because they form the background to what's going on in our passage. So Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And Jim brought out the three promises that were in that passage for the descendants of Abraham. Firstly, that they would have a great nation. And we've had chapter one of Exodus read to us, and we see that that was fulfilled. They went down to Egypt as a family, an extended family of 70 people. And then, as we've seen in the video, they left as a nation. So that was fulfilled. The second promise was of a land where they would live. That's in verse one. But they weren't, that wasn't yet fulfilled. But the promise was repeated in Exodus. And there are four verses in chapters three and six where that promise is reaffirmed by God as something that will happen. It was another 40 years before it did, but that eventually did. And the third promise was a blessing. If you look at verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. There is two sides to it. Last week, Marco showed us that the Pharaoh at the time of Joseph blessed the family of Abraham, and he himself was blessed, both he and his nation. So that's the first half of it. Today we look at the other half and look at a pharaoh 400 years later who cursed the family of Abraham and was himself cursed. And we see again uh, the fulfillment. We also see in Exodus chapter 2 verses 24 that we had read to us that God remembered his covenant with the ancestors of the people God heard their groanings and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And so I bring this back over this series of three so far to point out that God is a God who is faithful to his promises. There may be a delay, but he does keep them. And now we have to look a little bit at the story that came up in the video. That was uh, very helpful. Thank you, Wayne, for getting hold of that one. But we need to think about it. The stay in Egypt at the time of Joseph started well, but 400 years later, a pharaoh oppressed Israel. And this wasn't an accident, because God had already said to Abraham way back in Genesis 15, in verses 13 to 14, the Lord said to him, know for certain that 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. And I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So that was not an accident. It was part of God's plan. We might ask why he did it, but that might be, that would be another story for another Sunday, perhaps. And Israel cried out, as we've already seen from chapter 2, the uh, way not, rather David Suchet read to us, that they cried out, they groaned in their slavery. It's actually worth pausing and asking it, asking the question, who was it to whom they thought they cried out for help? 
Now, it was God who heard, but the text doesn't actually say who Israel thought they were crying out to. Now, consider this. Later parts of the Old Testament acknowledged that Israel worshipped other gods in Egypt. You can find that at the end of Joshua and a number of other places throughout the Old Testament. So it seems that they still knew the stories about Abraham and their other ancestors, but it appears that they had not maintained Abraham's faith. And so when God rescued them, it was not because of their faithfulness, but because of his grace, his unmerited grace. That's just an aside to think about. But back to the story. God called Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refused and suffered the plagues. And the last plague was the death of the firstborn, as we saw in the video. But the firstborn of Israel was spared. We want to look at a little more detail how that came about, and particularly some verses in chapter 12, starting at verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Skipping on to verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. And get on to verse 12. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so what we have here is that there were Passover sacrifice, a, a, a lamb, or it could have been the young of a goat, a kid. And uh, they put the blood on the door frames, and God passed over all such houses. And that's after the firstborn of Egypt died, eventually Pharaoh said go, and they went. But even then, as the video showed us, Pharaoh pursued them as far as the Red Sea. And that's where we leave them for Marco to continue next week. Now, we're, we're not in Egypt, we're not slaves to, Egyptian, to an Egyptian Pharaoh, but how do we relate to that for ourselves? When we look at the parallels in the New Testament and the way uh, they, that New Testament writers present our salvation. Um, the ser series titles for this series are God Promises, God Provides, God Saves, God Speaks. So we're looking at God Saves, and that's our, our title for third day. But that salvation takes a different form in the New Testament. And we can look at the salvation that was in Exodus pointing forward to that greater salvation, which was uh, accomplished in the New Testament. But brief, briefly, I think we need to look at the biblical evidence that the Passover is in fact fulfilled in the New Testament. And just a few simple points. In all four Gospels, the timing of the crucifixion at Passover is emphasized. And the emphasis is such that it clearly it wasn't a co coincidence. And on matters de of detail, when John, in chapter 19, is describing events of the cross, he actually quotes Exodus 12:46. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. And if you remember that in, in John 19, 
when Jesus was on the cross, they didn't break his leg to hurry his death, because he had already died. So that was seen by John as a fulfillment of the Passover. And it's most explicit actually in 1 Corinthians 5. And since we're at a church, we're in the middle of 1 Corinthians, that's a good place to go to look. And he talks about, Paul talks there about, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So having established the connection between the Old Testament prefiguration and the, the New Testament uh, truths, we can look at various aspects. And for us today, our heavy duty term of the day is redemption, as what's already been introduced. Let's look first at what the uh, word means. And because we don't use it very much today, I'm old enough to remember Green Shield Stamp Redemption Centres. Uh, maybe some of you are too. Where training, where all sorts of traders would uh, give you stamps as a bonus, and you stick them in a book and take them along to a redemption centre, where you'd get a, a gift instead of your Green Shield Stamp. But that's not really what's going on here. There are actually two Hebrew words used in these chapters of Exodus. And they both supply metaphors that help us understand what's going on in that big heavy-duty term. So in brief, there are two words, as I said. One is ga'al, which is a term taken from family law. So one for you, Christina. Not quite English law, but uh, rather different. In ancient family law, a redeemer is a close family member who would have responsibility to look out for someone's well-being in various ways. And that would include, if for some reason a person fell into slavery, the redeemer would redeem them from slavery by paying a price to obtain release. And the other word, tadar, is one that is, occurs in the aftermath of war. Now, prisoners of war would normally become part of the plunder after the battle. And unless they were redeemed, or we might translate it ransomed, they would might even end up as slaves. So once again, if my release was obtained by paying a price. Now, symbolic terms of Exodus, we would think of the price perhaps being the blood on the door frame, uh, implying the, the death of the Passover sacrifice. There are a number of phrases that persuade some scholars that there's more to it in this case. And I'll give you an example from Deuteronomy 4, where Moses is reminding the next generation of what had happened. So Deuteronomy 4.34, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by kissing, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Now there was no payment to Egypt, of course, for country inappropriate, but there was an exercise of power on behalf of the people. You notice the phrases, mighty hand and outstretched arm. And one could see that stretching out an arm transitions in the New Testament to sending forth a son for self-sacrifice. Well, whatever the case on that, it's clear that in the New Testament, the price of release was the death, namely the blood of Christ. And just of the, all the examples I could have picked, one my mind turned to Ephesians chapter 1, and in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 
that passage also points us to a connection with, between redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We'll see more of that in a, a little bit later. When we turn to the New Testament, we find that the salvation is better, and that's what all, all the Hebrews is about, but the price is greater. A lamb versus the lamb of God, the very son of God, the eternal son of God himself, becoming human and dying. So the price is a great one. So that's thinking about what redemption means. And the two prepositions we can use with redemption, redemption from and redemption to. So let's look at that first of all, and redemption from. At the time of the Exodus, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, and their redemption was, was a redemption from slavery. Now, people today probably wouldn't uh, see themselves as slaves. Uh, if you talk to your friends and neighbours about suggesting that they're, they're slaves, they'll probably be offended and uh, certainly would uh, object quite strongly. And Jesus actually did that. And in chapter, John chapter 8, in verse 31, we read a conversation between Jesus and, and some others. To Jesus, to the, sorry, to the Jews who have believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Well, think about it. They've forgotten their own history, and they've forgotten their situation, that they were a small province on the fringes of the Roman Empire. And we're carrying on the quote reading from John. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So there Jesus is challenging his hearers to see that they are in fact slaves. Now Paul argues very similarly in Romans chapter 6. And starting at verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourself for someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And this passage in Romans uh, points to the idea is redemption is not only redemption from, but also to. So you notice that. The former state of the people he's writing to was that they were slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. So let's look at uh, do a similar sort of thing for redemption too. And think, what was Israel redeemed to do? They were redeemed to worship and serve God. If you look, if we've read through all the um, encounter, shall we call not hardly conversation between Pharaoh and Moses. You see, Moses repeatedly says, let my people go so that they may worship or so that they may serve thee. So that's the purpose of worshiping and serve God. Going back to Romans 6. Uh, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now the difference in, is 
the old slavery of the Egyptians in Egypt was hardly the slavery of the heart. They were not committed to Pharaoh because they loved him so much. They hated him. And likewise, for the Christian, a slave to sin. No one does it as out of heart desire. So the difference is that our service for God is to be from the heart, a heart that delights to please God. We're set free from slavery, but choose his way and slavery to him. Now, there's a little book that has quite an influence on my thinking over the years. Some of you may have come across it, I doubt it. It's, the title is Some Call It Sacrifice, by a couple who spent many years in Borneo as missionaries and have seen many of those they were serving turn to Christ. And when they came back to this country and others, Australia among others, when they spoke about the work, some who listened said that they had made an enormous sacrifice. The remarkable thing was they didn't see it that way. For them, it was a delight and a joy. They were doing it because what they were doing was their heart's desire. And that's the, the difference, I think, in terms of slavery to, to God, slavery to Christ, if we put it in those terms. That it's, he, if he is our heart's desire, then it is our delight to serve him. And there's a quotation attributed to Augustine, love God and do what you will. If you really do love God, then uh, what you will, what you desire, what you want, will be what he wants. I sometimes wonder whether some Christians have too much of a sacrifice model for Christian liberty. And I thought, in the light of that book, it prompted me to suggest a better model for desires. So that we desire different things, not uh, because it's a sacrifice, but because it's a delight. Uh, I have to add, by way of disclaimer, that I've not been called to sacrifice anything much myself, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And there is, such a, there is a transformation when one comes to Christ. And I'll tell the story of a friend of mine who I heard saying something about his conversion. Before he became a Christian, he had a fairly foul mouth. But when he became a Christian, he stopped swearing. No one told him to. He didn't decide to. He just stopped. And it was only some time later he actually noticed that he wasn't doing it any longer. And his interpretation of that was that it was a special blessing to him to assure him that something real had happened to him. And that the, the trust in Christ was, was genuine and real. Now I have to say, would that uh, things like that were always so easy? Sometimes they're a lot harder. And if we, have, if we are honest with ourselves and with one another, we'd have to acknowledge ourselves as slaves. So I want to make a rather a sobering point at this stage as we've been thinking about uh, redemption and look back to the, once again to Exodus and to the Passover and realize that in those days redemption cut two ways. Back in Egypt there were those whose firstborn were spared there were those whose firstborn were not spared. What made the difference? The blood on the door frames and God meant that God passed over those houses. 
But in every house not marked that way, the firstborn died. So that we've already seen. And as we've been going through, we've been asking similar questions about the way it works out in the New Testament. What makes the difference now? And the dividing point is Jesus. A couple of verses from chapter 3 of John's Gospel. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Dividing point, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is the cross in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us and who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so it's our response to Jesus and what he did on the cross that determines our fate. Sobering but true. But that's not the end of the story. There was a future aspect to the exit of salvation. Remember what I said about the land promise being reaffirmed, but not yet fulfilled, not for another 40 years. By the time they crossed the Red Sea, they had already been redeemed out of Egypt, but they were not yet in the promised land. And I see at least one uh, person smiling because they're recognizing the, the contrast between already and not yet, which is one that I, I think we see quite often in the New Testament. So in the same way as, as we've seen, we have already been redeemed, but we are not yet in our promised land, the new creation. We're still awaiting for the redemption of the bodies, Romans 8, the resurrection body, 1 Corinthians 15. And so, yes, there's an already in our salvation as there was for Israel as they crossed the Red Sea. But there's still a, a future more glorious than the wilderness into which they found in which they found themselves after the Red Sea. So we'd say that there is for us a, a glorious future. Uh, the, our promised land, the new creation, we learn about at the end of Revelation. Sometimes I wish we knew more about it. It would be even more exciting. But whatever it, the, the details might be, we know that it's better because been promised to us as the greatest thing that can happen. But not only that, even in this life, while we wait for that glorious future, there can still be fuller experience of redemption. A deeper appreciation of Jesus, a deeper commitment to him, and a growth in what I've called the transformation of our desires as we desire more what he desires. Folks, there is more to come. Well, I've got a few bullet points in by way of summary and conclusion. And summarise what has happened to us. We were slaves to sin, but in Christ we have been redeemed. Those sins have been forgiven. We were bought with a price, and we know the immense price that God paid redeem us, so that he might do so justly without compromising his holy character. 
We're bought with a price, we belong to him, we're to live for him. And this is true freedom and joy. Let's not consider it a slog. If it's a slog, let's go and ask, Lord, please help us to understand and see more of the freedom and joy that we can have in you. And that, I, I think, is where I would want to leave you. And I had hoped that we were going to be able to sing a hymn at this point. Uh, it would be The Price is Paid by Graham Kendrick. Uh, I vaguely remember singing it years ago, but it came to mind. And it was a celebration of what we have in Christ because he paid the price for us. But since we're not going to be able to sing it, I think probably it would be appropriate for, us to, for me to close in prayer and just thank him for all he has done for us. So Father, we thank you that you didn't uh, hold back anything in accomplishing our salvation when you sent Jesus to become human, fully human, and to live a life among us. And we thank you that he didn't stop short of dying on the cross for us. And we thank you that he rose again on the third day and he ever lives to be with us and to pray for us in heaven. And we thank you that one day there's going to be something better. But meanwhile, along the way, may we know joy in the freedom that we, he has given us, that he has bought for us, so that we can praise you and rejoice in you. We ask it in his name and for his honour and glory. Amen. <laughs>